Minnesota is definitely a place full of wonder and mystery. Aside from being called the land of 10,000 lakes, even though it actually has more than 14,000 named lakes that are larger than 10 acres or larger, they also invented water skiing and post-it notes are from there. Seems like Minnesota's got everything going for it aside from those snows, you know, affectionately giving that nickname of Minnesota. Welcome back to the swamp, my friends, and welcome if you're new. Today I'm going to be sharing some creepy and allegedly true horror stories sent in by viewers just like you from the state of Minnesota. It's been a while since I covered a state in specific. I know I've done most of these already, but Minnesota was one of the few I haven't. So I decided I'd circle back to it, smack it down, and let's get it done. As always, if you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit your story at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I would love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp at stories like yours to help keep this show going on a daily basis. Now, without further ado, be sure to hit that like button, subscribe if you're new, and get ready for some creepy and allegedly true Minnesota horror stories. Nursing Home Night Shift by Alyssa S. When I was younger, somewhere around 20 years old, I'm now 32, I worked in an assisted living home in rural Minnesota. I enjoyed the job, helping the elderly. Once I discovered that I really enjoyed the job, I planned to honestly further my career in nursing. I worked overnights in the assisted living building as it fits well with my college schedule. I was one of the only younger people on the night shift, working alongside people in their mid-30s and up. I learned a lot from these people, heard scary stories of their experiences, and made some friends I still have. One night though, while working there, I was scheduled on the third floor with about 15 residents. I'd gotten to know most of them and was relatively close to a few. One lady, who we will call Judy, was my absolute favorite. She was a sweetheart and we would spend hours talking when she would be awake at night, unable to fall asleep. Judy was somewhere in her 80s and in pretty good shape. This particular night, Judy rang me to her room to receive help fixing her TV. After tightening the cables on the back of her TV, we sat and talked for about 20 minutes or so. She told me how she planned to walk to the nearby park in the morning, something she did every morning. She'd walk to the park with a bread bag, sit on the benches beside the water, and feed the geese. After talking, I told her I had to go do my rounds and that I'd see her the next night. We said our goodbyes, and I was leaving her room. She said, Alicia, you're a good kid. I smiled and went to do my rounds. A few hours later, my coworkers and I decided to go outside and have a smoke somewhere around 4.30 a.m. We sat outside in the cold, 40-degree weather and smoked and chit-chatted. As we sat there, we noticed an older lady walking down the sidewalk away from the building. I thought she looked familiar and I realized who it was when I saw the bag of bread she was carrying. That's pretty early for Judy, don't you think? My coworker said. I guess so, I replied. We laughed and continued smoking. Then our pages started buzzing and we rushed inside. When we met the coworker who paged us, they had a distinct sad look. They hugged me for about 30 seconds. The whole time I was confused. This coworker knew my family, so I worried something might have happened. Confused as ever, I followed them to the elevator and up to the third floor. My heart fell as they led me to Judy's room. I heard sirens in the background and knew this wasn't good. To my shock, it was Judy, lying lifeless in her bed. 
My co-workers and I glanced at each other, astonished. I felt a mixture of sadness and confusion. Haven't we... I swear, I swear to God, we had just seen Judy walking toward the park. I knew I wasn't crazy, because my co-workers saw her too. We, we never really brought it up again. As scary as it was, I just decided that Judy was probably doing the thing she loved the most that night before she passed. Walking to the park to feed the geese. Who Killed Chris by Anonymous On Halloween night 2002, 21-year-old Chris Jenkins, a University of Minnesota student, went to celebrate the spookiest night of the year down at the Lone Tree Bar and Grill with his girlfriend Ashley Rice and three other friends. Chris was separated from his friends shortly after midnight and ejected from the bar. According to reports later given to police, a drink was accidentally spilled on his pants and the security supervisor assumed that Chris was so intoxicated that he urinated himself. After Chris was removed, the security guard was instructed not to let him back inside. Unfortunately for Chris, since his Native American Halloween costume had no pockets, he had to ask Ashley to hold his wallet, keys, and cell phone in her purse. His coat was left inside in the bar, and what turned out to be a chilly, 20-degree night would be brutal for him. Since he was not the designated driver, Chris could not get a ride home and could not contact his friends inside the bar. He was last seen headed away from the bar on foot, but did not return to his residence and was eventually reported as a missing person. On February 27th, the following year... Chris Jenkins' bloated, decaying corpse was found floating beneath a bridge on the Mississippi River. He was still dressed in his Halloween costume and had gotten wedged in the branches of a large tree next to the upper St. Anthony Falls Dam. The medical examiner found no foul play on Chris's body, so drowning was the official cause of death. Despite the police ruling it death by misadventure, his family launched their own independent investigation and discovered several odd discrepancies. The Jenkins family hired a private detective, Chuck Lausch, to investigate their son's disappearance further. When Lausch questioned staff of the Lone Tree Bar and Grill, they maintained that Chris had left the bar alone. The venue's owner eventually issued a gag order instructing employees not to speak to anyone without an attorney present. Now... This was weird to the investigator. They also contacted the Federal Reserve Bank, which happened to be the owner of the two CCTV cameras that had a good view of the Hennepin Avenue Bridge. The bridge was on the route that Jenkins was likeliest to have taken, but when the bank checked their surveillance footage from the early morning hours of November 1st, there was no sign of him. Lausch's investigation also led him to multiple witnesses who each independently recalled a fight in front of a local pizza place. Though it was unclear if the victim was Chris, a gang of around 9 or 10 people had violently attacked another outside the restaurant. Mike Casey, an off-duty police officer, was in the area of the night of Jenkins' disappearance. He was moonlighting as security guard for a nearby Hennepin Center for Arts and was introduced to Jenkins by his girlfriend, Ashley Rice. Ashley happened to work at the Lone Tree Bar and Grill and was familiar with Casey. Well enough that she happened to borrow pieces of his uniform to complete her cliched sexy cop costume. The rumors are that Casey had masterminded Jenkins' removal from the bar to get with Ashley, given that he gave her a ride home later that night when she finished the shift. 
The Minneapolis Police Department never formally questioned Casey, but stated that he's a married man with children, we don't want to break up a family. Which is a damning statement in its own right. The Jenkins family hired two bloodhound trackers to trace Chris's scent from the Lone Tree Bar to an underground parking lot across the street. The scent led to parking stalls where one of the bar's bouncers reportedly parked on Halloween night. A bloodhound produced a mild hit for Chris's scent on this person's vehicle. Droplets of blood residue, a piece of red string, and a red feather fragment possibly belonging to the headband of Jenkins' costume were also found in the garage. Jenkins' blood alcohol content was only 0.12%, so he could not have been particularly drunk. But oddly enough, coroners, they noted that traces of GHB were found in Chris's system. However, since GHB is a substance that is produced by the body naturally, this does not necessarily mean that Chris was drugged. Forensic pathologist Dr. Michael Baden took issue with Jenkins' body being found with his arms crossed out in front of him. Drowning victims who accidentally fall into the water are almost always face down with their arms out towards their sides and their clothing disheveled. Yet Jenkins' shirt was tucked in with his drawstring pants and his oversized slip-on moccasins were still on his feet. This led to speculation that Chris was already dead when he was placed in the river. Hydrologists who studied the Mississippi River were highly skeptical that Chris's body could have been in the water for as long as four months without being seen, as the river did not freeze until January. Moreover, the area beneath 3rd Avenue Bridge was searched in the weeks following the disappearance with no sign of him. A daytime thawing occurred on February 27th, the day Chris's body was found so he possibly floated from another location before his body got wedged between the tree branches. Jenkins' family found it highly unusual that his body had no bruising, their son was an enthusiastic lacrosse player, a goalie who often came home from practice with giant purple and yellowing patches on his legs and forearms. Since these bruises were absent, his parents believed that he may have been alive for a couple of days after he went missing, allowing enough time for his bruises to heal. Three years later, in 2006, the Jenkins family met with Minneapolis Police Chief Tim Dolan, who had decided to reopen the investigation based on newly attained evidence. Chris's death was eventually reclassified as a homicide, and Chief Dolan held a press conference to apologize to the Jenkins family formally. Years later, Dolan would state that he estimated Jenkins' death was 50% chance of homicide, 30% chance of accidental death, and 20% chance of suicide. Once the case of Jenkins' death was reopened, an informant told authorities he had witnessed somebody throw Chris's body off the Hennepin Avenue bridge into the Mississippi River. Now still, there was some skepticism about this story since Chris had no bones broken, no injuries that really showed that he would have been tossed over a bridge. It has a high safety railing it would have been impossible without his body hitting a steel support beam and a vertical metal cable on the way down. In July of 2007, the Hennepin County District Attorney's Office announced that they had been approached about filing charges against a suspect in Chris's murder, but apparently they declined to do so. The suspect in question was Jeremy Alford, who was serving a life sentence for the brutal murder of a man named Douglas Miller. Alford admitted to being a regular drinker at the Lone Tree Bar and Grill around 2002. Chris, he, his case had been connected to the infamous Smiley Face Killer, as his death occurred around the same time that many college-aged men in the Midwest were discovered, but I, I think it might be a little bit closer to the Alford thing. But unlike many other cited cases to the Smiley Face Killer or Killers, no Smiley Face graffiti was ever found around Chris's death. 
And it just seems like, as of right now, there's not much more to say. Weird Creature in Minnesota by Jester Prince. I moved to Minnesota about six months ago, and it's a pretty cold state. More or less, I love it here. It's very peaceful, and when it snows, it's beautiful. However, my image of Minnesota has changed last night. My mom and stepfather sat down to watch a movie in the living room. As the movie was about to end, we paused because my mom wanted to smoke, and I had to use the restroom. I was sitting down with my stepdad once I came back from the bathroom. A few seconds later, my mom opens the patio door and yells for us to leave. We rush outside and she tells us that she starts hearing the noise of something very large walking in the snow. When she began to look around from where the noise could be coming from, about 40 feet away was what she could only describe as some sort of white creature. She said that when she looked over there, she saw something with red eyes staring at her. She said it looked like a giant dog of some sort, but it looked all wrong. At first, my stepdad said it was probably a coyote. Then I was thinking about how my mom heard this from about 40 or 50 feet away. That would be a really, really big coyote. And I realized it would have had to been large, you know? I've always been one to believe in paranormal things. My mother, not so much. We looked around for a bit longer and then went inside again. A few hours later, I leave my room to grab a soda to continue playing Halo. After the whole event, I, I had this unshakable feeling. So I decided just to look outside to reassure myself that everything was okay and I was just seeing things. As my eyes scan the edge of the woods, I don't see anything. I take a deep breath, grab the soda, and close the fridge. As I close the door, I glimpse out the window and freeze. Sure enough, I see a pair of red eyes peering at me through the trees. I couldn't see much because of how dark it was. It was around 3am at the time, but I know what I saw. This was something that I've never seen before. Those red eyes went right through me. Then, as quickly as I had seen them, they disappeared. What do you guys think I saw? Researching the darkest and most depressing topics online will undoubtedly present you with many tragic cases that are never solved. I often encounter cases that seem to have been forgotten and ignored by our justice system. As I keep looking into these things, I notice this more and more. I keep finding a trend of lazy and unjust investigation conducted by law enforcement, especially in the 1980s it seems. I have made it my mission to shine a light on these cases in hopes that one of you watching may have some information to share. The story we are covering today is a genuinely failed case by the justice system. The story of what happened to Keith Warren has haunted his family for over 30 years now. Officials claim he took his life, but the evidence points to something much more nefarious. What happened to Keith Warren? Well, let's do our best to find out. At 19 years old, Keith Warren was on his way to a promising and bright future. He had recently graduated from Kennedy High School in Silver Spring, Maryland. He was on his way to college and pursuing further education. During the summer, he was hanging out with friends and working a few jobs. Keith worked at Glenmont Chrysler and Belpre Shell. I am unsure for how long he worked there or what his schedule looked like. B 
Before I go any further, I want to stop and say that most of this information I have on this case came directly from Mary Warren, Keith's mother herself. Mary has been running and maintaining a website dedicated to her son's unjust death for over 30 years. She has made it her mission to not only put the facts of this case, but point out the prejudice and negligence of the local police force. You can check out additional information, evidence, and documentation, and even donate to the investigation at the KeithWarrenJusticeSite.com, which is currently maintained by the family. Keith was well-liked and a personable person who made friends very quickly. Safe to say this would be a double-edged sword. Keith had made friends with some undesirable people over the summer, some of which may have been involved in drugs and crime. Now that we are more acquainted with the background of the situation, let's dive into this story. Keith received a phone call on Tuesday, July 29th, 1986, and then left home to hang out with some friends. Keith never came home. The next day, Keith's mother, Mary Warren, called the Montgomery County Police and notified them that Keith was a potential missing person. Mary was told that until 48 hours had passed, they could not go look for him unless he had an extreme medical condition. He was an adult after all. Two days after Keith Warren hadn't returned home after hanging out with friends, paramedics from the nearby fire and rescue station got a call from a girl who claimed someone had committed suicide in the basement of their house. The house in question is 14655 Tynewick Drive, not too far from Keith's home. Rescue personnel arrived at the scene and were met by three people. Chip Wynn, the house owner, Claudia Lawson, Chip's girlfriend, and an unidentified male. I could not find much more about that third person. Officials had been informed that Claudia had been the one who called in the report. When officials asked to see the basement, they were suddenly told the body was in the woods. When officials asked the group to join them in the woods, they declined and sent Claudia. Claudia had never given a reason why she had called, saying the suicide was in the basement. This screams a red flag for me, significantly since Claudia would yet again change the storytelling. She had stumbled upon Keith's body while walking her dog in the woods. The paramedic on the scene, Dallas Lip, noted that this scene did not look like a suicide. Montgomery police officer Luther Leverett from the Wheaton Glenmont Police Station responded to the scene and took over. According to Mary Warren, this officer seemed to know who Keith was and who Chip Wynn was. She admittedly claims the officer, Luther Leverett, did not follow the proper police procedure and did not secure the scene and close off the area to preserve evidence. According to multiple bystanders, the police officer seemed to be in a rush and was very unprofessional. Officer Leverett said, Why would this have to happen on my lunch break? This is highly concerning to me. I couldn't imagine an officer of the law reacting this way to a suspected suicide. According to the reports, Officer Leverett immediately ruled the death a suicide. Over the radio, he told the county coroner not even to bother coming and to mark the end as a suicide. In the report, Leverett notes Keith had, and I quote, apparently jumped off of a log. The paramedic who arrived on the scene stated there was no log or anything else for Keith to jump off in the area. Officer Leverett removed the body from the tree, 
had Keith's body sent to Colin's funeral home and immediately embalmed the body. This is, of course, not the proper procedure. It wasn't until seven hours later that Keith's family was notified about his death. Now, think about this for a moment. They had processed the entire scene, sent the body to a funeral home, skipped a trip to the morgue, and never told the family their loved one had been killed, let alone committed suicide. This is absolutely unacceptable on every level. Officer Lebret was given Mary Warren's work number and offered a phone to call her, but they declined and said to have her call him when she got home. What sense does that make? After receiving a call from her neighbor telling her to call Officer Leverett, she was distraught and couldn't tell Mary what was wrong. Upon finding out the news, Mary screamed and was told that Officer Leverett was out on another call and would not be available for at least two hours. Again, what sense does it make that we have to wait for a specific cop to get information about a situation involving your child? Roughly two hours later, Leverett showed up at Mary's work and questioned her about Keith. Mary had mentioned he had been missing for two days, and that's when he dropped the bombshell on her. He told her that Keith had committed suicide and asked why he would have done such a thing. The following few statements are from Mary herself. I wanted to include her exact words to truly express how deceitful this investigation was to her son's death. I asked if the officer had found him. Officer Leverett responded that yes, he had been found, and he had committed suicide. He questioned me why Keith would have committed suicide, preying upon the innate pain and guilt that any mother would feel upon receiving such a message. I cooperated with him the best I could while agonizing over this revelation. At the time, I trusted Officer Leverett. Even though I could not think of any reason why my son would take his own life, I tried to think of any recent disagreements between my son and me. The only thing that came to mind was my strong objection to Keith's choice of car. Officer Leverett later exaggerated my statement and used it to substantiate his creation of a reason. It was Officer Leverett's idea that Keith had become depressed over this and committed suicide. Although Keith had no history of drugs, I asked Officer Leverett several times whether drugs were involved. Given that the area of Aspen Hills where he lived had reported drug activity amongst teenagers, he emphatically replied, no. Upon his departure an hour later, Officer Leverett handed me a business card from Collins Funeral Home in Silver Spring and told me to contact them after 9am the next day. At first, Mary said she believed the narrative that Keith took his own life was true. She had yet to realize or to be educated on the details of the case. As far as she knew, Keith was found and sent to a morgue. When she learned this and found many discrepancies too numerous to ignore, she had concluded that this was no suicide and others agree with her. After Mary met with Officer Leverett, she called her brother and had him go to the funeral home ASAP and identify the body. For whatever reason, he was denied entry multiple times and told to come back the next day. After a full 24 hours, they finally let them very briefly see the body of Keith Warren. And to put a cherry on top, Mary was even sued later for not paying for the services even though she had not ordered them to embalm her son's body. At every step, the officials were making this as hard as possible for the Warren family, and for no seemingly good reason. 
When Mary requested her son's clothing, she was told they were destroyed because the amount of body decomposition had deteriorated the clothes, which makes no sense to anyone with a brain cell. Bodies do not decompose that badly in two days in those circumstances. Now, it might be more believable if this were in a swampy area or something along those lines, but it wasn't. Mary also refuted this. She even works in pathology for a living. She also requested the rope and eventually was given a brown bag containing the string and Keith's signature brown boots. A few days after Keith's body was found, the Montgomery police chopped down the tree. They claimed to have done so to collect further evidence, but nothing has seemingly come from it. Police treated this case as a suicide from the very beginning and called it an open and shut case. I firmly believe this is not the case and Mary Warren agrees. There are so many unanswered questions here. Why was protocol not followed? Why was the family not contacted until seven hours later? Why was the body not sent to the coroner? Why was the tree cut for evidence if this was a suicide? Most importantly, why does the evidence point to murder? A few years later, on April 9th, 1992, Mary had found an envelope addressed to her on her front porch. There was no return address or anything like that. She opened it to find original copies of the police photos from the crime scene. Mary has never figured out who sent these to her, but a note was included in the envelope. According to this note, Mark Finley and another redacted person would be next. Four months later, Mark Finley was killed in what was claimed to be a freak bicycle accident. Even stranger yet, Mary claims her car was broken into and the note was stolen, but oddly enough, nothing else was taken. After closely inspecting her son's photos, she noticed several odd things. First, she did not recognize the clothing Keith was wearing. She did his laundry and was very familiar with his wardrobe. Second, as Officer Leverett had said, Keith was not wearing his brown boots. He was wearing a pair of white running shoes which were not his. Lastly, Keith is nearly sitting with his feet touching the ground. It doesn't even remotely look like he had jumped from anything. It seems like he was propped up where he was after he was already dead. After receiving these pictures, Mary demanded the case be investigated more thoroughly. Police were shocked by how she had received the images and were now willing to talk to her. Albeit with little interest, the Montgomery County Police refused to move forward even after the new information was presented. Mary requested to see the tree that they had cut down, but they said it had been destroyed in a fire at the police HQ. Why does it seem there is a massive cover-up at every turn here? Assistant State's Attorney Matthew Campbell went on record to say that the police did a poor and sloppy job on this investigation, but still did not have the case reopened. It would seem this would be the end of Keith Warren's story, gone but surely never forgotten. But this is not the end. A group called Clams, Chatter, Laughter, and Mingling Society became interested in this case. It helped raise thousands upon thousands of dollars to have Keith's body exhumed and have independent pathologists and other forensic scientists conduct an autopsy and toxicological exam. Five separate pathologists found that Keith had died from inhaling or ingesting toxic chemicals and not from asphyxiation. These results were sent to Dr. John Smiliak, the chief 
medical examiner of the state of Maryland. He declined the report saying the chemicals were likely from the embalming process. Now, as I feel that could be a logical answer, I also think it would be precious to investigate further into this. According to Keith's mother, some of the chemicals found in Keith's body are not the type used for embalming, and the toxins found were much more lethal than the embalming fluid. Whether Keith took these toxins on his own accord or not is to be proven, but sadly, the official ruling of the death remains suicide by hanging. Keith and his story has been featured on one of my personal favorite shows and inspirations, Unsolved Mysteries. This stirred up many tips, but one was more interesting than the rest. An unknown female from Alabama called in and claimed to have dressed Keith's body. She didn't explain why Keith was undressed, but she did say she dressed him in somebody else's clothing. This tip confirmed for Mary Warren that her son was dead before he was strung up in that tree. This case is truly one of the most tragic I have ever covered. When I stumbled upon this case, I just knew I had to make a video on this and spread awareness for this case. The blatant cover-up from the police boggles my mind. Something more happened here, but I can't say exactly what. However, I can say with certainty that justice was not served here, and a family still grieves over 30 years later. If anyone has any information on what happened to Keith Warren in July of 1986, please send your tips and information to info at thekeithwarrenjusticefoundation.org or be sure to visit the website thekeithwarrenjustice.com for more information and documentation on this story. Thanks for listening to these creepy and allegedly true horror stories from Minnesota, plus an extra one at the end. If you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to slap that like button silly as it really feels it, and it helps out the swamp a ton. Be sure to subscribe if you're new, turn on notifications so you never miss a new episode, as I upload them multiple times a week on all things natural and supernatural. As always, if you have a story that you would like to share, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I would love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. It's stories like yours that help keep this show going on a daily basis. If you're on the go but don't have a YouTube premium account, you can download and listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories no matter where you are. From Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. It's free and always will be. Thank you guys so much for supporting the swamp the way you do. I couldn't do this on a daily basis without you guys. I'll see you guys very, very soon with another creepy episode.